first of all, uh, I want to welcome everyone to the Anatara Medicine Podcast. This is a podcast we just sort of started to get me into fireside chats uh, with outstanding experts uh, across a wide variety of fields. Uh, today, I have the the luxury of talking to a good friend, Dr. Paul Anderson, who's a very senior naturopathic physician in the United States, a leader, I think internationally, um, written many books uh, on oncology and, and now I think veering into mitochondrial function and, and, and all the and all the fancy terms that will come out of the, the discussion today as it relates to COVID, but quite um, a fusion between uh, an academic, someone's trained like myself in academic medicine, but um, putting numbers and observations down in publishing and done, have done an outstanding job in training MDs like myself uh, in naturopathic forms of thinking and principles and then backing it up uh, with um, experience. Uh, I, I believe you, you, have, um, you still have your very large and successful clinic in Seattle, uh, correct, Paul? Yes, it, in, the, in different format than it was before COVID, but uh, yeah, everybody is still uh, there taking care of patients and we're just sort of uh, set up a little different than we used to be. Yeah, but uh, you, you've accumulated a tremendous amount of information um, and I know you've been involved in NIH studies on integrative medicine and oncology and there's so few grants given in that direction that you made the most of it and and um, and uh, that field, of course, is just absolutely necessary to 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 exist uh, in essence in 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 parallel to allopathic forms of oncology. But today, to me, the reason I wanted to to get you and your mind on on the podcast today is because uh, the way you think, um, and I think that. If you have something that makes everything worse, in this case a virus, you can learn about a lot of things that are basically fundamentally important because uh, it sort of tips people over the edge, a certain proportion of the population. I'm going to speak to my own knowledge in post-viral autoimmune states, uh, my own literature that we've created over over decades when I was at Johns Hopkins and so on. But the way you think is the is is the approach that I think is missing in in the academic in the academic world because they're looking at it with silos uh, and not an integrative system. So um, you've heard the term system biology, of course, and and live like that. And uh, you, this this is the way you treat patients. And I think that this is what's missing for the population. So let's you know let's let's get into it. I mean, I, I think that um, I did want to take one one or two minutes to just give a, a very, very high level overview of where we are. I think we're about three years in. I think my own opinion is that um, COVID started a few months, certainly a few months before everyone else thought it uh, started. And you had cases in Seattle, I believe, as early as November of 2019 probably earlier than that. And I had uh, Silicon Valley people doing deals with uh, the Chinese um, in November of 2019. 
and the entire room was ill with uh, loss of taste and smell and, and coughs and so on. Very classical early COVID symptoms several months before it came from Europe into New York City in March uh, of 2020. So we're in three years. Um, there's a lot of lessons to be learned and to go over today. Uh, but we have 99 point some odd percent of population now exposed to Omicron versus the other variants. It is milder. It's not fun. It's not a fun experience to go through if you have symptoms, um, but it's not going to land you in the hospital unless you're quite old. I think the average age now is over 80, closer to 85 years of age if you're hospitalized in the United States and, the, and, the, and in the UK. But you're not going to die. It's not the same type of cytokine storm typically that, that we had before. Uh, so then we have the, the, the epidemic, the public health epidemic of long COVID now uh, as the main concern for those of us that treat the iller populations and also want to protect ourselves for not having something irreversible happen to us. So, we we know what we know, and uh, when you think about the system biology approach, uh, why do you think that 95% or so of the, of the people who end up to be hospitalized have a lot more co a lot more comorbid conditions, and wh why is that the the not only age is the predictor, but comorbid conditions are the predictors because this virus attaches to a certain receptor that I wanted you to speak to about. Yeah, so I think, well, thank you, by the yeah. way, first off, uh, for having me. Um, and I think that uh, what we're seeing with initial infection, as you said, is in the era of Omicron, you know, unless you're already very ill or maybe elderly or a lot of comorbidities, you're very unlikely to wind up in the hospital like we saw previously, yeah. certainly. Um, but I think uh, that what we're seeing now is sort of a, uh, a greater unmasking of how insidious the process of SARS-CoV-2 is when it, when it infects people because we're not getting the larger numbers of people, maybe going to hospitals, maybe being in ICU, et cetera, and yet we have more penetration of the virus, okay. we're seeing what it's doing, which what I try and tell patients is, it, COVID is the great unmasker uh, of mm -hmm. anything that you may have never known you've had, or maybe right. you had it. And I think that a lot of, especially when you get to long COVID, I think a lot of the problem there is really that people don't realize how much their body is putting up with and how much you're compensating for uh, uh, subclinical illness. And then that becomes, you know, super clinical illness after COVID. But I do think in the, in the uh, era of the acute COVID experience, um, when you have something that can uh, bind to receptors like ACE2. And when you have, uh, you know, a virus that can alter cytokines the way that, that COVID does, uh, just though, and there's so many other reasons it's pathogenic, but just those two things alone create so much Im immunologic confusion that uh, then if you did have, especially with Delta and prior, if you did have underlying respiratory or cardiac disease or uh, 
diabetes, metabolic syndrome, you know, mm -hmm. any of those things, uh, which all have a lot of things in common. In some cases, the immune dysregulation yes. just would spiral out of control. And, and because at least, you know, we think back maybe two to three years ago, uh, early treatment was not very popular. You weren't supposed to talk about it, all of that stuff. But, you know, what I think people like you and I have found is the earlier we treat people, the less trouble we have, uh, and also the less post-COVID we have. So I think a lot of it is just an artifact of we have this, you know, not new, but semi-unique virus. We've had, you know, we had original SARS, which distinguish itself because it killed people rapidly. So the spread was much, you know, much more controllable. Um, and then we have its, you know, downstream grandchild of SARS-CoV-2, which, although it's part of the uh, coronavirus family, it just, it has these very unique pathogenic triggers. And those happen to be things that push on, you know, when you push on one uh, cytokine pathway or one um, receptor, you get any number of downstream things being turned on and off. And the problem that we uh, have, you know, in immunology is it's not a one-to-one -one relationship. So mm -hmm. in a very healthy person, the trigger might go in and it may just sort of fizzle out because the body compensates. In somebody with an underlying issue, whether they know they have it or not, you might turn on those triggers and then that actually accentuates your pathology. Right, right, so right. then your acute experience could be worse or not, or your chronic experience could be worse. Yeah. I think the brilliant thing you said amongst many, but uh, is that you said it's, it's unmasking how much your, your body's tolerating on a day-to-day -day basis that then it's on, it's certainly unmasking it. So this is a 50 year problem. I mean, when we've, I'm, I think, a bit older than you, but when we first started practicing, I gave um, grand rounds at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine and Pathology on the rare disease called Alzheimer's disease mm -hmm. in 1980. So uh, more than 40 years ago, it was a rare, I mean, it was it wasn't the most common case. It was a, a woman in her 60s, but yet, but it was rare. And the other case I, I did was an autoimmune case because the autoimmune people, uh, and the immunologists, rheumatologists were like the Maytag people that had nothing to do because they, they, the cardiologists and, and were making the majority of the dollars for the hospital in those days. And, and that's changed. So a lot of socioeconomic factors plug in, but but it's quite interesting how you can take a fairly strong hit to your, uh, to your receptor, in this case, that modulates so many different functions, including immunological function. And, and a subset goes into a state which I call chaos, uh, immunological chaos, and that gets all the press. But we, I think, knew from the beginning that there would be a much larger population that goes into a state of perpetuation uh, and then a state uh, of even people who do well early that have either no symptoms or few symptoms and then exacerbate uh, a state of sort of subclinical immunity, immune dysfunction. Uh, we can call it perhaps autoimmunity. 
uh, with different types of mechanisms, and then they get sick. Uh, but it's slow. It's slow, methodical. Um, when I was in the transplant team at Johns Hopkins, we had folks with myocarditis, and now the public now understands that myocarditis is a real issue after this particular virus. But in those days, we had more people studying viral myocarditis than actually had it. Because it was a rare, <laughs> it was a rare disease, uh, but it, it was a good model because uh, you had people with fulminant disease, which was rare, but you could have that, and you can end up in the ICU right away, uh, or you can have uh, some kind of stomach flu, and then it, it attacks the heart, and you get some injury, and you can measure it, and you could follow the, those people through, and they typically get better on their own. And then you had this group where, you know, they, you may or may never have a, a flu-like illness, and then they just manifesting when they get really ill. And I predicted that it would take at least a year or two for that to manifest, and, and now it, it's, it's happening. Because this is certainly the, the biggest um, example of, of a virus producing heart injury, as we'll discuss later in, in the talk as to how many people and who's getting it and so on. But we, we now have um, the NIH's attention and the government's attention um, for long COVID. And I'm not sure that there's a great distinguishing feature between long COVID and long vaccine. Uh, I'm not sure that it really makes that much of a difference in this case because of the nature of the vaccines can generate their own spike proteins and then they could generate their own uh, autoimmune state or, or this dysregulated state. It doesn't have to be autoimmune. It doesn't have to be uh, specific um, to, to a given target. Um, um, but ha having said that, you, you, I think, understand mo more than many doctors out there, many master practitioners out there, if you, have to, if you have something that produces over 200 symptoms, that's confusing to, to the public. I mean, how is that possible? And it's certainly confusing to the, to the allopathic physicians. Uh, like, how is that possible? I mean, well, well, if you have a cellular defect that involves every cell of the body, Perhaps that's a unifying hypothesis. You know, perhaps that's that's it. And um, and and so, why don't you speak a little bit to why you think that this may be an unmasking of a set of injuries on the cellular level that really caused this thing to go out of control in any number of people now, certainly in the tens of millions of people that are now having some 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 degree of long COVID. Yeah, I, I think, um, you know, just to put a point on something you brought up and uh, I've been doing uh, long COVID updates now for two years, right. uh, which seems crazy, but they, I, I do not see this being not a problem for the rest of our careers really. Um, and one of the things in later reviews that I brought up, because I'll update my uh, my data summaries and I, I do literature reviews, so you know I'm coming from someplace somewhat solid. Is I just tell you know the physicians, whoever's in the course, that 
it really doesn't matter at the point that you have an injured patient, whether it was triggered through a vaccine injury or through native COVID or maybe some combination, because really the damage is the same. And so you're on the other side, you you have to step back and and treat this person uh, in, in a more, as you say, system biology or holistic manner, or you're never really gonna get them very far. And one of the frustrating things I think we see with patients is, you know, what is the, the allopathic system works really good if you have one organic problem. Uh, and so what happens long COVID patient will be referred to the cardiologist, they'll be referred to, uh, you know, a number of other specialists and they'll say, well, we, we don't find any, any organic damage. So you you don't need one of you know one of me one of a cardiologist or whatever or maybe they do find something but then there's 11 other things that are wrong and i think that what we're seeing and i've seen it myself and certainly i, I keep in touch with a fairly large group of clinicians who have been treating acute covid and now who mm-hmm. are treating uh, long covid and so it's not just you know what i'm seeing i kind of compare notes um I think that that regardless of the trigger, whether it's from treatment or from the infection or both, one of the things that we see in the data is there, the first thing they started to do a lot of research on was uh, co-infection along with COVID-19, SARS-CoV-2. And that started way back in Wuhan. Uh, so I did some updates early on on IV vitamin C and ICU use, and I had published a paper on teaching American hospitals, how to use vitamin C for ICU use. And a few did, uh, not very many. But I also got all the data from Wuhan, not just on their IVC program, but on their other research. And they were already researching co-infections. And really, just to shorten up, probably what is 30 or 40 peer-reviewed papers now, maybe 50, is it's not so much, and you know how when you're researching, we like to find one answer to one problem. Anytime you look for infections with a sick COVID patient or now look at a post-COVID and you look for other infections that aren't SARS-CoV-2, um, you will find them. And whatever you look for, you'll find a lot yes. of. And so we, we see not just you know the typical things like Epstein-Barr and CMV and mycoplasma pneumonia and chlamydia pneumonia, but there's a large number of very, very nasty kind of rare bacteria a lot of them that cause pneumonias and other mm-hmm. problems. Uh, there's fungus, there's parasites, et cetera. So I think if we look at that as that was like an early model and that was very clear in the early data and the sicker patients had the worst co-infections, yes. most of them didn't really um, probably gain those infections with the COVID. The COVID's messed with their deranger immune system. They were either exposed acutely in the hospital or we, we carry a lot of these things around in small numbers. The derangement for the COVID immune response lets these just fulminate. And I've literally had patients where um, they had to go to the hospital, this was with earlier variants, and they died of co-infections, not for lack of knowledge, but, but lack of the uh, attending staff not calling infectious disease soon enough to test for them. And in every case, infectious disease always said, well, we wish you would have brought us in earlier because they, they actually died of these other infections yes. and we could have probably treated them. But I think the more important thing is, because it's, again, it's kind of easy to take the ball and run towards infections because it makes sense. 
But the other areas that we're starting to see more and more data on are uh, reactivation or de novo activation of autoimmunity, right. uh, probably from the same triggers, um, increased sensitivity to environmental toxins. So we, we now see people who maybe were tolerating mycotoxin mold exposure, fine. They didn't know it was a problem. They come out the other side of COVID and the mold exposure doesn't change, but their tolerance drops, changes. you know, and I've seen the same with metals and environmental chemicals, et cetera. So there's a big environmental piece and none of us, you, you, well, you, you and I might, but most people in the public don't want to think about how toxic the world is around them. And we don't, we don't realize, you know, what a soup of, uh, of immune disrupting chemicals that we live in. And so that's a whole other area. Um, and the other one that I think is real insidious and people don't test for it till often it's maybe too far gone. Uh, well, not too far gone, but pretty bad is there's a lot of early on subtle and then later less subtle endocrine disruption. So in our normal response to cytokines shifting around, you know, our adrenals will produce a bit more cortisol and they'll shift things around to mitigate the immune response and our thyroid response to that. A lot of these folks will come out the other side. They never had any endocrine problems and now they've developed mm -hmm. thyroid resistance or uh, either hyper or hypo cortisol output, all that kind of thing. And, and I think that if we don't, uh, and, and I always will tell the doctors this in the audience, of course, this is a small, medium, and large problem. So if it's a small problem, you can probably get them past it fairly easily. But people with medium and large, you know, uh, pathologies in, in post-COVID especially, they really require all these systems to be rechecked. And in spite of how healthy the person might have felt they were prior. And I think that that's why I feel COVID's initial immune disruption or maybe spike protein triggered by the vaccine initial immune disruption is just so good at twisting the immune response just enough that it opens the door to all these things that are possible. Well, thank you for that really nice explanation. Uh, to me, it brings up um, the following type of thinking. Uh, the concept of we're living like an area under the curve in terms of toxins, okay? So the last time we had a de definitive type of very large scale epidemic was in, 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 flu in the Spanish, you know, in the flu epidemic of 19, 1918, I think, 1919. And um, well, what was different about that? Well, it killed a lot of people. We knew that both children and, and adults, and we are thankfully protected here as children with a particular mechanism of action of the virus. Because the younger you are, the more likely you haven't messed up your ACE2 receptor as much as our, us adults have. But um, we didn't have industrialization and our population was so much smaller. Now, we lived in dirtier conditions. We did, but then we had no access to antibiotics and, and so on. We probably have, we had access to better food quality, uh, less chemicals, and less toxins, and probably, probably fresher water, who knows. But we have better public health conditions now, but environmental conditions are bad and and as you well know, and we can talk about later, the effect on gut immunity is fundamental to our overall health. And this, this subverts that uh, again and uses it against us 
because it does push us towards autoimmune states um, in a natural way. So, so you you have these. We changed, and and I sort of sensed that, um, you know, when I was um, in high school and university, that by the time I got into medical school and training ten years later, um, things had begun to shift, um, and um, probably that's in the late seventies and early eighties, and industrialization started taking form. And so this is the great unmask, or I like that term. I, I think it's a great term to, to use. So, but then you say it, it doesn't really matter how you get here because we've been here before. We've been, um, you know, and, and I got trained at, um, in medicine in Yale and, and very close to, to Lyme country there and never heard of it. <laughs> I just didn't hear about it. Yeah. Actually, the, the last doctors to ever treat people were in Connecticut, but it started there. Uh, but we, we have chronic fatigue syndromes, um, the encephalitis and so on. We, we know what they look like and they look, quite similar and you pick that up in whether you're reading it's not you don't pick that up so much by reading the new england journal as you do reading the new york times and and the atlantic magazine which is now my favorite news source for information on covid and long covid and vanity fair because they're picking up the individual stories and saying well wait a second this reminds me i've had this for 20 years you know i've been a chronic persistent lyme patient for 20 years and now after my COVID, I'm worse, uh, and I'm reactivating, or I'm um, I'm reactivating the persistent cells, or whatever it is. But I've had this for a long time, and I've been treated um, like it's a psychiatric uh, condition for a long time. But but it, guess what? It isn't. And so this um, takes the 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 COVID wars uh, take the make the Lyme war wars look silly, you know, relatively speaking, but it exposes that reality where if you're looking for a single cause for uh, something that produces an exponential number of disorders, you you're not looking, you can't see it that way because it 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 doesn't make sense for people who um, who want to look at it that way. Um, so we have something that needs to be treated a certain way. So you brought up the issue of, of IVs. And of course, if you have someone with acute COVID infection, uh, we have tools at our disposal in the, in the naturopathic world or in the integrative medicine and functional medicine world that we know should help and, should, and it will certainly not make anyone worse. It's not wait until you can't breathe and then come to the emergency room. That wasn't a rational approach. We all know that. So, um, but they're they're basically me metabolically f get you back to metabolic shape. Um, it's uh, uh, things that, in principle, bring your antioxidant systems up and and bring your inflammatory system under control. Can you speak to that a little bit and and say that's in the acute situation? Then we'll we'll go further into where where you are and what it exposed and how you can learn and who to see uh, to to get that mystery solved for all these millions of types of people that need to know. Yeah, yeah, I truly think in you know starting with the acute uh, acute illness with COVID nineteen. Um, 
what I have seen over and over and what I've seen with many, many other clinicians in this group that we compare notes with is, uh, as opposed to what you had mentioned, the, the original advice, which was stay home till you can't breathe and then go to the hospital, which is, is just a recipe for disaster, as we saw. Um, if we could do more aggressive things early in the illness, much like we would do with any other acute viremia that we yes. might see, et cetera. We had a much shorter duration of the illness. Those patients didn't go to the hospital. They didn't need to. Um, and many, many, the majority of them didn't experience long COVID. And so that in, you know, in my practice, if I could get the person, even when they were early and febrile, and we gave them a high dose vitamin C, you know, IV provided all the labs were okay. Um, the earlier we could do that, the better. Same mm -hmm. with ozone, same with, you know, just whatever was clinically appropriate. And, and then um, the other things that we saw that kind of fit into the uh, same line of thinking with, with a good outcome was if we did things that not only supported the immune system and the oxidation reduction part of the immune system, which gets really hit hard with COVID early, but if we also supported um, not allowing all of those potential uh, co-infections to, right. to fulminate or come out, we had much shorter duration of illness and healthier patients on the other end. The one change that I have seen during the era of Omicron is because they, it's as you said earlier, it's an uncomfortable illness, but it generally isn't going to send you to the hospital, et cetera. Um, if they started to you know, get a pretty bad viremia for a few days, but then they started to improve at about day three or four, if they had a second wave, that was always caused by other infections. And so the the initial few days weaken the system, gets the uh, gets the immune chemistry all you know out of balance, body can't you know correct itself. The second wave is usually non-COVID based uh, infections, and so that's why we're really aggressive with them on that end. Um, the other thing I think that's important, just to get uh, the IV vitamin C idea, there is really sort of two procedures that, that were done. One was pre-hospital higher doses, as I said, maybe 50 or 75 grams of vitamin C or a really good, you know, ozone dose, et cetera, or maybe alternate. Um, in the hospital, with a couple exceptions, in, in so there were the original Wuhan case reports, we've got two RCTs finally published with positive response in the ICU, and there's more RCTs that are somewhere in the publication process. What they noticed worked better was um, a continuous infusion of vitamin C so that their body was getting about a gram an hour, even 24 grams in 24 hours on a pump. And the reason, and it would lower IL-6, it wouldn't, it wouldn't snuff IL-6 out, but it would bring IL-6 down to a more moderatable level. Uh, it manipulated some other cytokines, and these people were, uh, everyone who was in the trial uh, with the drug, with the vitamin C, uh, shorter hospital duration, survival benefit, uh, and some biochemistry benefit. So it would seem that when they got to the hospital, a kind of a continuous low and slow with the ascorbate, because we all know that 
when we're ill acutely, our ascorbate just drops to zero because it's water soluble and we can't get enough. And that not only throws off your primary immune cells and primary immune function, but it takes away the whole center of your oxidative reductive balance. So if your cytokines are spiraling out of control and we take the middle of your redox control out with vitamin right. C drop and uh, our body can't do its normal thing and go in and kind of calm the cytokines down. So I think that's why that worked. Um, I will say that there, there's, there's one case report from Wuhan where there, someone was literally dying and they thought, well, let's just try something. They gave him 50 grams very rapidly, more like we do outside the yeah. hospital. Uh, and that person actually got off the ventilator and lived, which was quite a story in and of itself. So, and, and I've seen that. And as I mentioned, you know, we published a, a paper for hospitals because you'd call the hospital ICU and they'd say, well, we've never given IV vitamin C right. uh, or we've heard about it. So we published this paper that has very clear, e easy to do. It's got instructions for nursing and pharmacy and the ICU docs. And in the few cases where family, I think families probably threatened to sue, yes. um, where we did that uh, early, early in the, I mean, with, with the bad variants early on, um, we didn't have any patient who wasn't able to get off the ventilator and leave the hospital, which was pretty amazing, regardless of it is amazing. issues. So I think that, you know, earlier treatment, you know, early on, everyone was, for whatever reason, we were all told, well, don't say anyone, you know, don't tell anyone you're doing early treatment. We don't know what it is. Don't tell anyone you know what it is. So it was just like, well, let's, let's just treat you anyway. Um, but I think everybody's seen that, that that is a pathway to not only more live patients, but healthier patients on the other end when you get to long COVID. And uh, another fundamental observation was that uh, the trend to people with higher vitamin D levels uh, will also do better and, and will be better later on as well. So it's uh, it again it goes to to cellular functions uh, that that need to be sort of in in certain types of balances that are just thrown out of balance and then if you put it back in balance in this case vitamin C is doing a lot of things but it's also a virus killer so uh, you're also reducing the viral load if you get there in the first few days yeah uh, I think our observation is similar to to what you said in in, in the sense that the second wave of day four, five, and six after Omicron, it's the folks that have um, um, other co-infections or biotoxins like mold, so that they're getting that. And, and in California and San Francisco, where we're based, um, there's a lot of mold. And um, people had, so there was a certain group of people that hadn't gotten COVID yet, but were indoors all day and got exposed to more, they never left the apartment, so they got exposed to more of their mold. And then there were patients who, um, clients who, who who got COVID or, or got vaccinated and so on, and then became sensitive for the first time to the mold that they had already been exposed to. And you all know that there's, a, there's somewhat of a genetic risk as well and uh, for susceptibility and like we have for almost every illness, and so it tops. You know, you could, you could, you could say that those people are more at risk. But you can have a couple living in the same location, or an entire family, and only one person uh, getting the the real exposure that bothers them enough that other things pop out. Um, we we are 
some of the unhealthiest people on earth um as you as you also know and um so i think with the nih's own data as 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 you know more than 90% of of us have metabolic dysfunction so and then you said later on in in the course of the the folks that get iller later and have more problems that you have a lot of metabolic dysfunction uh, that you can measure and so let's talk about first like what we can measure and what typically comes out of the, these folks and then and out of that maybe what kind of generalized type of principles of treatment because ultimately i think i thought this would be a uh, a real push covid would be a real push to see your naturopathic doctor and see your integrative doctor and maybe that's going to happen over time but i don't think the public um is educated enough in this area not yet it can never be enough but i but your comments should be stunning to the public and that is that you are convinced um as a as a master of doing this for more than 3 decades that we're going to be left with this for the rest of our lives and i and i and i and i have the same opinion um so when we unearthed the last great um unmasker was industrialization you know industrial food supply uh technology uh, big tobacco big pharma big 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 blank and that on earth took something again like something that would normally take maybe a fraction of 1% of the population would be would would manifest a, an illness to maybe 4 or 5% of the population would be at risk to get something serious out of day-to-day life basically uh, or they or they get exposed to an influenza virus or or eb virus or cytomegalovirus or something like that that most of us have in our system but would get ill and now it's 30 30 40% of the population uh, because things are fundamentally different so um what do you um envision uh now that you can get most people can get their vitamin d levels um paid for by insurance uh to to be covered in most institutions and most doctors would get it what what do you think um people should be looking for should they be looking for changes in the way they handle uh, sugar metabolism and should there be uh, ways that they looking what their antioxidant status is I think that's something that you could talk to specifically. Yeah, I think uh you bring up so many good starting points there. Um I think as you mentioned, you know, the uh vitamin D levels and correlation with severity of illness and death and everything we started to get those papers right. coming out, you know, kind of a little bit later but fairly early. and people you know would push back on that and say well it can't make that much difference and it really does um and it's a fairly simple thing to do and as you mentioned most of the time it would be covered just to check and yeah. find out where you're at what we try to get our patients to do is uh to get their vitamin D levels in the upper quartile so the upper 25% of the normal range uh even though that's a little higher than some of the data that showed just associations with less disease uh there's a lot of other good reasons for that now one of the things i think that um makes it 
maybe better in a more complicated patient situation to see someone like us in the integrative and naturopathic world is when you get to a lot of the chronic pro-inflammatory things such as metabolic disruption that we'll talk about next, you can also get derangement in your vitamin D metabolism. And so sometimes what will happen is people will go and they'll get it rechecked at three months or six months. And it's like, geez, I'm taking all this vitamin D and it's yes. still low. But what's happening is the inflammatory part of their biology is actually triggering the hydroxylase enzymes to convert it downstream to uh, a, a, less, um, a less desired uh, isomer of vitamin D. And so really underneath all of this, especially when you get to long COVID, you, you're bringing up uh, metabolic dysfunction and how that bleeds over into uh, you know, our antioxidants, et cetera. That's, I think, ground zero for what you could say lights the fire. Yes. Um, and so again, there are so many people when we talk about industrial age uh, and also you know, industrialized food, and you know the American diet generally being completely unhealthy for many people. Well, the same way we got people who didn't notice mold before and now they do now, we could add people with uh, you know dysglycemia, insulin resistance, pre-diabetes, or even frank type two diabetes who didn't know before. Yes. Then they go and they get this you know big triggering event uh, through whichever pathway you trigger it. And when you have insulin dysregulation, uh, which is uh, you know large part diet, part genetics, and then you know uh, part other things, it is one of the biggest chronic twenty four hours a day, seven days a week triggers of uh, abnormal inflammatory chemistry in your body. Well, if you get this virus that has this oddball twist to its you know inflammatory chemistry my body then is already churning, you know, all this low level inflammation. It just pushes you further into uh, the negative part of the inflammatory response. Cause you know, we, we want the inflammatory response early on to trigger our immune system, but normally our body has countermeasures to bring it down. When you have metabolic dysfunction and then you get the right mixture of inflammatory chemistry from an infection, the infection can just spiral out of control. And I think, especially in the earlier variants, that's why we saw people with uh, metabolic dysfunction, high BMIs, cardiovascular disease, they would be more likely to get much more sick. Right. You know, it's the, it's the one unifying pathology there underneath everything. And, and I think that um, we don't real, I mean, it's certainly in the medical data, but we don't really talk about, we don't realize maybe, especially as the public, how unrelenting metabolic dysfunction is because we don't feel it usually. Right. And then so underneath it's just sitting there, just, you know, hammering away on you in an inflammatory manner. So not only does it derange your normal antioxidants, all that, if you get sick, um, your body has a real hard time bringing you back to, you know, neutral, bringing you back to health. So I think that metabolic dysfunction is another thing that really needs to be looked at and can exacerbate when you get into long COVID. So looking at, you know, the basics like uh, C peptides and fasting insulin and A1Cs and, you know, all those things that we like to track. The other thing that I'm seeing um, 
that is uh, identifiable and quantifiable that uh, I, I think at least in, in the right population should be tracked are um, uh, the, the LDL subfractions and a lot of the little uh, inflammatory chemical markers we can look at with respect to cardiovascular health. And what I've been seeing in the people, usually it's people that had pre-existing lipid issues or maybe they had you know other health issues, but we do an NMR, for example, and fractionate out their LDLs and their lipoproteins and things. They'll often be much more inflamed than they were prior to COVID or prior to the vaccine, et cetera. And uh, so the small particle size will go up and uh, the uh, LPA will shift and the B like protein Bs will go up. And so they just pick on this uh, even more inflammatory uh, chemistry. And what I'll try and get across the patient is that while there are many things to do about this, what this means is it's not just your cholesterol that we, that's the thing we can look right. at. Every cell membrane in your body ha, doesn't have a chance to quell inflammatory activity now, right. you know, cause it's so inflamed. So, uh, you know, things like vitamin D, you know, well beyond bone health, vitamin D is one of the master uh, immunologic regulators in the body, which is probably why it's associated with better health in, in this infection, certainly. Um, vitamin C, on a different tack, you know, same idea, uh, albeit easier to use up and it, you know, kind of goes through you faster. So you have to keep replacing that one. Um, but I, I really think that this underlying, you know, inflammatory biology, a lot of which we can test much better than we used to be able to, um, I think that that is part of what's at the base. And then, you know, we keep bringing up the, the angiotensin converting enzyme, the ACE2 receptor, and, you know, we, we all were trained to think of that, you know, with respect to sodium potassium right. balance, and certainly it does that. But the, the ACE receptors are all over, and they're also involved in things way beyond, you know, electrolyte shifting and keeping us from, you know, having uh, electrolyte shifts that kill us, et cetera. And so they're part of what deranges your adrenal function, which is so critical for calming your inflammatory response. Uh, they derange many other endocrine and, you know, uh, many other tissue areas. So I think that when you're looking at getting the genie back in the bottle with respect to long COVID, that's where you kind of have to take a, a step back and say, well, let's start with the obvious thing. So a person has some metabolic dysfunction, they're very inflamed. We've got some data points we can look at and maybe their endocrine system's just a little off balance we can work on that if that's pushing them forward by working on those things and we kind of leave well enough alone and see how they resolve if we do all that and they're still just you know they have that chronic fatigue picture that chronic line picture that's not going away i always tell people let's take a look at infections they do or don't know they have so let's do something broad there uh, we will often, in well, in everybody now for screening, we'll rerun anti-nuclear antibodies um, because those can those can kick up after uh, thyroid antibodies can, and so then we just start to broaden our uh, our look, um, and that would include the environmental stuff we already talked about. Well, thanks, thanks again for that great summary. I think we're we're going to add um, a coagulation markers to to that list as well, certainly, and someone with any 
vascular pathology and, and vascular tendency. The D-dimer the D is the one that we typically use. Um, and we can talk talk about that in a, in a few minutes. But also, um, you know, we look at ferritin, serum ferritin as an iron marker, uh, but it's to me, it's a rust marker. So uh, it's oxidized iron that's running around. So uh, you want to keep your ferritin level on the low side too. But the concept of... Um, if you if you get if you get hit with a, with an acute virus of this type of magnitude that ha, that has an effect on sort of a global effect, you're going to go into an inflammatory state more likely. This is not necessarily captain of the football team at the age of 17, but for you know the the adults when you when you look at the epidemiology. 80% of all the U.S. deaths, um, at least in the old days, in the first year and a half or two years of COVID are, are in greater than 65 years of age. And I mean, the risk is hundreds, hundreds of times less than the children. I mean, just an enormous factor um, less. But you, you have, um, so you, you get this hit to your system it's going to be a lot of hard work to get back to where you were before, but the where you were before put you in this mess in the first place. So, so if you, that's the that's the message, um, the real message here that you, you thought you're okay, you know, um, but you're still aging in an accelerated fashion. And now that acceleration is now in 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 an extra gear, so you're working on that even more um, towards a negative a negative effect. This is not the people who are dying suddenly, uh, who have thrombus or, or clots, uh, heart clots and and brain clots and and clots in their venous systems and so on. But the, the, these are the folks that are just inflammatory. So the inflammasome is now becoming more and more known to the general public. Well, it's not good to be inflammatory, but we live that lifestyle and now it's it's the kimono is open, basically. Uh, so it's a lot of work. And so it's not easy to, it's much easier to, to, to get to a, dis, to, to a destination when the train is going downhill because uh, you don't have to use a lot of gas, but uh, to get there, a lot of electricity or coal but it's really hard to slow it down. Now, everybody gets a lot of attention on the uh, on social media by saying, oh, well, you know, we're all going to live forever now. And, um, you know, I, I'm going to be a centenarian like like my next door neighbor is. And um, 90 is going to the new one is 90 is the new 40. OK, well, you you know, if if you pass this immunological metabolic dysfunction stress test, then maybe you're on track. You know, you know, maybe you are at least in this particular way. It doesn't mean you can't um, get the flu next season and 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 die from it. It's possible because that's maybe something unique to you. But your your whole system is sort of stable. You know, but if you fail it. That's a signal that your body's saying on a whole global level, you have to fix me. So sometimes it takes IV therapy. Sometimes it takes, you know, ozone. Sometimes now we have, uh, as, as you know, um, you're the founder of AAMP and I'm the president of ACAM. 
one of the, I guess, in the 49th year of, of, of their life. But uh, we have one whole day on our more advanced ozone therapy called EBOO, uh, which puts a filtration system onto the, onto the ozone. And why is that important? Well, it's not important for the average person per se, but it's become important because some people will require it in order to get over long COVID. Some people will. Uh, and it's not the only thing in the toolbox that you're going to have to use. You have to fix a lot of the systems to get it back to a state of homeostasis. Um, so, you know, I, I think that the basics are still the basics and nat naturopaths are, are so good at it. So it's, it's take your walk every day after dinner. So it's exercise, it's time restricted eating, it's uh, vitamin D, it's getting your glucose metabolism not to be carbohydrate overloaded and and getting your antioxidant system up with a, something as simple as taking vitamin C. It's not so profoundly difficult, but when you're out of whack uh, to understand that that is a true signal, that that is a signal, I mean, and it's an important one. I did a study before I started on a tire medicine 11 years ago um, and I asked one of the world's largest databases to um, to look at people that had Alzheimer's then uh, in the current time and look at their records back 25 years earlier. And what they found was um, it didn't matter what the symptoms really were, but they had a list that was two and a half times their age and sex match controls that weren't that didn't have Alzheimer's. So they had all these signals going on, and, and you know said, okay, these are nuisance things, you know, uh, there's nuisances that, but they're not important. But meanwhile, they do have overall an effect. As, and as you know, and you could speak to a little bit, we have a lot of the press going on um, that one of the mo the most common long COVID symptom was probably um, brain fog. Um, and that's, you know, brain inflammation uh, from whatever cause. It just, uh, whether it's reactivation of something you had before or it's, it's related to the virus or the vaccines, but it, it's, a, it's a state of a low-grade inflammation. You can have the same in the heart. Uh, these are the two most common that sort of come up and they're serious enough to get everyone's attention. Um, but you're, you're inflammatory, so uh, surprise. Uh, uh, and, and what my, my younger son was, is graduating from Johns Hopkins this month, this next month. And he was a public health major, uh, before COVID. And now he's in a economics major because he switched majors because he, he sort of said like, wait a second, is this really public health or is it infectious disease control? You know, is it, what, what do we have here? And, we need a, a massive educational set of programs that talk about, you know, this is how to live um, your life a little bit more cleanly. And, uh, and you have to decide what's worth it and what isn't worth it. But you should be at least be educated on, onto this. So I think uh, naturopathic medicine should be part of allopathic medicine training. Um, you have my uh, complete support with that. I think it's, it's truly... Uh, missing from from our uh, education and our public's education, um, we're we've been going on about an hour now, um, Paul, and 
Do you have any sort of closing statements? I think we have a lot of tools in the toolbox that the public is not aware of. I do want to make one more comment. Uh, you've had NIH grants and I've had many NIH grants in the past and participated in many clinical trials. And, and, uh, and we all know now that in most of the big cities in the country, the major academic institutions have long COVID um, clinics. And when you go there, um, they do have you seen by the appropriate set of specialists. Uh, but when you look at the NIH's structure, the way they go about handling a problem like this is they accumulate data and they'll study uh, and observe and then um, they'll, um, they'll, store and they'll, they'll store bloods and so on for future studies and so on. And, and one of the problems with that when there's no hypotheses being tested is that we'll see you later in 2025 when we get a hold of all the information that we've accumulated over the last three years because now it takes three years to accumulate it to get enough people on it um, but then then we'll get to the hypotheses and that's not going to work here it's just the public will not can, cannot wait another two and a half three years to hear what they're going to be measuring in the next in the next set of trials uh, because we you you know that this fits into a hypothetical framework which deals with inflammation and mitochondrial dysfunction as the end pathology and we know um there are basic principles that could be followed yeah i mean there's just there's so much you know that could be uh, unpacked there but um just a couple of things i think uh, um, to summarize that i've seen and you know seen have correlation one is what you brought up earlier we we follow these other inflammatory markers in these patients and so crps and d-dimers and ferritins and ldh and some other you know some other markers that are considered soft but they're they're very meaningful and normally there will be some in that group that will be elevated. And one of the frustrating things, I, I just did a post-COVID update for um, a state association and they were sending me questions to sort of work off of. And one of them was they kept trying to treat the D-dimer and, you know, or go after the particular yes. uh, analyte. And what I told them was, I said, when it gets to long COVID especially, those things are your immunome's way of speaking back to you that, it, that you're just inflamed. And it could be high ferritin, right. it could be D-dimer, it could be all of them. And I said, really, you watch those, but they will not become normalized yes. until you treat yes. the rest of the person. Right. That The rest of the person is what's making those go up. Because, you know, we, we think the other way. We think, well, there's no clot dissolving, so why is the D-dimer high and all this? Well, it's, it's because we're super inflamed, same with the ferritin. Um, so I think that that's a big, it's a big mind shift, which is instead of treating those numbers, we have to make the patient better, make their inflammasome come down and level out, then those things take care of themselves. The other thing that is in the data, I mean, there's now there's close to a hundred really wide ranging, uh, just neurological injury and in COVID right. papers. And most of them come up, especially the ones in the last year with the same uh, thesis, which is with absolutely no physical trauma, 
COVID is exactly the same as a high force TBI, yes. traumatic brain injury. And so no one's looking for that. No one's looking to treat that. Well, the brain is so inflamed that the blood brain barrier is leaky and the uh, neurotransmitters don't regulate right. And the brain's just constantly inflamed, which is a big part of where the brain fog and the central pain comes from. A lot like we see in our Lyme patients yes. or other people like that. Um, and so that's another thing, like getting that in doctors' heads that the, okay, no trauma, but we have the same level of derangement yes. of brain function just by the COVID event, for example. Um, so I think that it's, it's sort of getting people to take a step back, which you know, as you, so yes, in the integrative and naturopathic community, that's sort of how we're supposed to think about things. Uh, in, in the allopathic community, it's much harder because they're looking for, you know, one cause, one treatment. And, and we all know, like, that's never going to happen, especially with long COVID. <laughs> um, right. And so until NIH and other places start considering it that way, um, I know many people are helped by these long COVID clinics, but a lot of times it's just the revolving door of specialists ruling things out and saying, well, you, you don't have my problem. Uh, and really they have a, a bigger problem. Uh, so I do think the idea of the inflammasome and metabolic health and all of that, that's sort of really at, at the ground floor of a lot of where the trouble is. Um, the one thing I would, and this is just my better angel speaking, they, they've been very quiet the last three years, my better <laughs> angels, but the, you know, when we started our, our study that NIH funded for integrative oncology, it was, I think, one of the first whole practice studies. So we collaborated with uh, Seattle Cancer Care Alliance, so real, you know, high-powered folks. Our part was, would an integrative approach to a person with cancer, and in my part of it was all stage four, but would an integrative approach that looked at all these other things that you and I are talking about now, improve uh, overall survival and quality of life. Right. And everyone thought it would do nothing. And we had enough signal on that with, with survival and some quality of life that uh, a follow-up study was funded uh, to look specifically at four uh, of the more common cancers and mm -hmm. same, and that's winding up sometime soon, I think. Um, so my hope would be with long COVID that, you know, somehow um, NIH would be open to a, a whole practice study, which is what, what you and I do. And I think that's the only way out of long COVID. Well, that I think will be part of your legacy. Um, and I, I do think part of your legacy is educating hundreds of practitioners. So can you uh, just Give us one minute on what what you're going to be doing at uh, at a a AAMP this year, this next year. Yeah. So uh, yeah, advanced applications in medical practice. We uh, do two three day CMEs a year. They're AMA category one. And what my goal? I'm the curriculum part of it. So my goal is to usually have four or five people with specialty areas join me. And so we don't have a lot of speakers. We have a lot of depth. Mm -hmm. And we pick topics that generally are, uh, you know, things in the integrative world that people are concerned with. The reason that the spring one coming up in May 2023, I decided to do uh, mitochondrial dysfunction and healing in the age of long COVID is I knew long COVID wasn't going away. 
And I also know that a lot of the repair has to start at this very base mitochondrial and cellular level. And I think in, you know, beyond mitochondrial diseases that you might see at a children's hospital or something like that, there's so many mitochondrial damage scenarios and there's genetic things that get turned on during illness that damage the mitochondria. And we're really just now in an era where we can test them more accurately to figure yes. out where the problem is. So I do think that that's going to be um, kind of the next step or the next level that we all need to be looking at and seeing if our patients are really healing is are, are we doing the right thing for these base parts of our cellular apparatus, which are so damaged by all the things we talked about. So that's our spring conference. And of course, it's not just long COVID. It would relate to our Lyme patients yes. and chronic fatigue and everybody else, really. Um, and then uh, normally every two years, we do an oncology-focused uh, meeting, and that will be in the fall of 2023. Uh, and we're working on faculty for both of those right now. So it's, it's exciting. Uh, and it gives me a chance to you know, reach out and, uh, and, and talk to experts and get them to come in and and, and be helpful to educating doctors. Well, uh, thank you for that. And I, I think you'll, you'll be seeing me at both of the conferences. So we'll be able uh, to, to greet each other again. And uh, I think the, the, whether, you're, whether you're trying to treat a, a world-class athlete or, or someone with stage four cancer or anyone in between with acute or chronic COVID infection, you, we learn from every patient. <clears throat> so, um, it's the summation of all the learnings from all these different sort of types of folks that gives you, <clears throat> I think, the knowledge that ultimately leads to a master practitioner that's been out of medical school for more than two years. So uh, so thank you very much, Paul, again, for your time and, and for your company. Thank so you so much. <laughs>